This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by TheGreatCourses.com, where you can watch or listen to thousands of lectures from top professors and experts. Get up to 80% off select classes by visiting TheGreatCourses.com slash galaxy. Today's show is also brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price, because everyone deserves a great night's sleep. Get $50 off any mattress purchased by visiting casper.com slash galaxy and entering the promo code galaxy. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 180 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the new sci-fi channel series, The Expanse, based on the novels by James S.A. Corey, which is the pen name of authors Daniel Abraham and Ty Frank. And we previously interviewed Daniel back in episode 35 and Ty back in episode 113, so check those out if you missed them. And this may involve spoilers for the first book in the series, Leviathan Wakes, as well as for the first four episodes of the TV show, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Andrew Liptak, who you may remember from our panel on the Sci-Fi Channel shows Killjoys and Dark Matter in episode 167. He's the weekend's editor of Gizmodo and io9, and he also co-edited the anthology War Stories, New Military Science Fiction. His reviews have appeared in Clark's World, Kirkus, Lightspeed, and Tor.com. So Andrew, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Then next up, we've got Justin Landon. He's the host of the Rocket Talk podcast on Tor.com and also a consulting editor with Tor.com Publishing. He was nominated for a Hugo Award and won a British Fantasy Award for his work on Speculative Fiction 2012, the year's best online reviews, essays, and commentary. So, Justin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, David. And also joining us today is Liz Shannon Miller. She's the TV editor for IndieWire and has also written for GigaOM, Attack of the Show, The New York Times, Variety, The Wrap, Nerve, and Thought Catalog. She also hosts the podcasts Liz Tells Frank What Happened In, and Very Good Television Podcast. So, Liz, welcome to the show. Hooray! <laughs> and today's show is brought to you by The Great Courses. Watch or listen to thousands of lectures on over 500 subjects. Each course is taught by top professors and leading experts from the most respected institutions in the world. And our featured course this week is called Your Deceptive Mind, a scientific guide to critical thinking skills. These 24 lectures cover everything from logical fallacies to cognitive biases to email scams. And the course is taught by Dr. Stephen Novella, an assistant professor of neurology at the Yale School of Medicine, and also the host of the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe podcast. And The Great Courses is giving our listeners a special limited-time offer. Eight of their courses, including Your Deceptive Mind, are available now at up to 80% off their regular price. The other discounted classes are Thinking About Cybersecurity, Fundamentals of Photography, the Everyday Gourmet, The Science of Mindfulness, Understanding Investments, 12 Essential Scientific Concepts, and The Art of Storytelling. To take advantage of this special offer, go to thegreatcourses.com galaxy. That's thegreatcourses.com galaxy. Don't forget, go to thegreatcourses.com galaxy. All right, so let's start out and talk about the first book in the Expanse series, Leviathan Wakes. So, Andrew, you wrote a long article about this series for barnesandnoble.com called Evolution of a Space Epic. So just tell us a bit about how this series came about. Yeah, so I, I've been a fan of the books since before they came out. Um, I picked up the uh, Leviathan Wakes when it was a, an arc and fell in love with it. And as the, the TV show had uh, started to come up, I was getting interested in sort of writing about, you know, how do, how do you go from a book to a television show? Um, I'd interviewed... James S.A. Corey, and it's his two parts, Ty Frank and Daniel Abraham. And oh, I had asked them questions over the years, just and I had sort of had the sense that there was a really interesting story behind it. So I, I basically emailed them and said, hey, I'd like to write this long article. Um, you know, how, how did you go from being a, you know, where did you get the idea from? And how did you go from being a television show? And as, as I started to dig a little bit deeper, the uh, story got more and more interesting. So it, it, it was a lot is a very different type of uh, origin story than most novels to uh, television shows. Well, yeah, I mean, tell us a bit about that, because it started out as a game uh, yeah. world, right? So what happened is that uh, w way back, I don't know, uh, probably about 2003 or so, Ty had been um, coming up with these ideas th for this space epic that he had wanted to 
you know, just play with just ideas. And, uh, a friend of his had wanted to, um, had, or sorry, she had an opportunity to create a massive, uh, multiplayer online game, uh, for a Chinese internet provider as was looking for pitches. So he's like, well, I got this, I got this idea. And he sort of started to develop some material for it and went from there, made a, developed a pitch. And then the pitch didn't go anywhere. The, the provider basically looked at the cost and said, nope, we're not doing that. So they went, he basically just trunked it and then, um, uh, and event ended up turning it into a role playing game on, on a, a paid, uh, sorry, a play to post to play form. I think that's the, that's how, what the name is. And, um, what you do there is he basically, it's basically just a role playing game on a discussion forum. And, uh, he started coming up with this story, uh, with all this material that he'd come up with. And he'd been, he was playing online for a couple of years and then he moved down to New Mexico with his wife. And he, he fell in with uh, Daniel Abraham, uh, Georgia Martin, and a bunch of other writers down in, in that area. And they basically went to him and said, hey, we hear you, you do a really good role-playing game. How would you like to, you know, we'd like to play this game that you've been, you've been doing. So he basically introduced them to that. And he started, um, you know, developing more of the story. So that's when Daniel Abraham said, you've got a novel here. You know, can I write it? So he basically, Ty basically told him, yeah, you know, go ahead and, um, Daniel started writing it, and when he handed it over to Ty, he Ty said, "Nope, this is all wrong. Let me go rewrite it." And that's when they basically started working together. They uh, Daniel wrote some stuff, then uh, Ty would would edit it, and then uh, Daniel would uh, sorry Ty would write some stuff, and then Daniel would edit it, and they basically would go back and forth chapter to chapter. And uh, soon they had uh, what eventually became Leviathan Wakes. Um, all the story that's in Leviathan Wakes came from came from the games. So like there's several instances where, you know, th this was all stuff that had come out of the, the game playing sessions that they, they had been putting together. So the, the book is really almost an ad adaptation of their role playing games. Right. And do, do I have this right that Miller was Daniel's character in the game and he wrote those chapters in the book? Yeah, I think so. Um, and then um, a couple of, there's a, there's one group that had been playing Holden's crew and uh, there, there's one character that, um, well, meets a pretty, uh, a pretty grisly end. And that was a, a character, uh, a player who had to leave the game early. So he was told that he'd get a pretty epic death. Um, and then, yeah, I think, uh, Daniel Abraham's group had been the ones playing the, with the mystery noir element. And so as they put the novel together, they basically, um, they had, uh, basically, uh, matched the two of them together and it worked out pretty well. Yeah, yeah. Well, so Justin, you you told me that the first book review you ever wrote was Leviathan Wakes. Tell us a little bit about how that came about. You know, it's funny. I was just talking to the editor who bought the Expanse series from James S. A. Corey. His name is Dong Wan Song, and he was at Orbit Books. And I asked him about that question about why I got into the book, which was that it was actually added as ancillary content to the Dragon's Path, which was the first book in Daniel Abraham's Dagger and Coin series. And I wasn't a blogger at that point, but I saw an opportunity to get two books for one, one of which wasn't out yet. And so I thought that was cool. They were giving away this copy of Leviathan Wakes for free in the in the ebook. And I think they did the reverse too later. If you bought Leviathan Wakes, you got a you got the ebook of Dragon's Path with it. But uh when I got Leviathan Wakes as a sort of this advanced copy of it through the Dragon's Path, I said, oh, well, this is this is cool. I guess I'll write a review because a lot of people haven't read it yet or because it's just attached in this way. And so I posted a review and it was just sort of uh, dumb luck. And then through that is how I actually got into reviewing. Uh, that was the first thing I posted on a blog. And then from, you know, obviously the rest is history. But uh, but yeah, I, I actually didn't like Leviathan Wakes very much, <laughs> as it were. Uh, I ended up loving the rest of the series, but I think it's by far the weakest book. Uh, so, so why do you why do you think it's the weakest book? Uh, I actually don't think the noir elements work very well uh, adjacent to the space opera ones. I think Detective Miller is the is is a bizarre character couched within the rest of the series, and uh, it's I don't think it's any kind of surprise that you don't really see those noir elements popping up as much as the series goes along. It having heard the history from Andrew about how these books sort of evolved. It sounds like Miller was kind of Daniel's Abraham's darling, right? And so it was in that first book. And but Miller's role obviously decreases with each book for many reasons. I I, I guess we can probably spoil that, but uh, 
his role decreases, and I don't think we see that kind of noir stuff pop up again. I just, I just thought it was a weird fit. I think Detective Miller is not a terribly interesting character personally. I actually don't think Jim Holden is a very interesting character either. And so that first book relies entirely on these two somewhat boring characters, um, and the, the series doesn't really sing until it's introduced uh, in Caliban's War with Christian Avasarala and Bobby Draper that the series really takes off, in my opinion. Huh, that's interesting. Well, well so let's get your uh, perspective here. How, tell us about how did you come to read Leviathan Wicks? Uh, I mean, I came to it. Actually, uh, my copy of Leviathan Wicks came from NBC Universal. Uh, I went to a uh, press. I, I I went to a press day for the uh, for NBC's upcoming slate of projects back in April, I think, and uh, they just kind of handed out copies of the first two books uh front of, of the expanse uh right there so that's where that came in and uh then i saw the pilot at comic con uh with a friend of mine who was a huge fan of the books as well and then i was like okay well they seem to have done a really nice job of bringing the two worlds together and so had you did you read the book before you saw the show or vice versa and vice versa Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, because I'm the same way, so it'll be interesting how we see it differently as opposed to people who read the book first. But I guess I'm curious, Andrew, what's your? do you agree with what Justin's saying about the first book, or did you like it maybe more than he did? I actually really liked Leviathan Wakes. I thought that the mystery, I, I like mysteries quite a bit, and I, I thought it worked pretty well. Um, what I took away from the first book, and which you sort of see in the uh, the pilot, is that it is paced very deliberately. And what these guys have done is they've, they put together a book that moves quickly, and it, it keeps you reading. And I think that's one reason why a it really hooked a lot of people from that first book. Um, that being said, the books do get better as they go on. Caliban's War, uh, as Justin said, is is a lot stronger, and there's a lot more interesting characters. Um, Abaddon's Gate is really great. Um, uh, Cibola Burn, I wasn't as big of a fan of. I think that's actually the weakest entry in the series, but... Um, they pick right up again with Nemesis games, and it gets even better. I think one thing that's really interesting about this series is that it seems like most science fiction is either set in the near future, like 1984, or it's set in the far future, like Star Trek, where there's hyperdrives and stuff like that. And there aren't a, there hasn't been a ton of stuff uh, exploring the in between phase. The you know humanity is spread throughout the solar system, but gone no farther. Um, I don't know. Do you do you agree, do you guys agree with that? Do you, did that feel fresh to you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, one thing I one thing I really enjoy about the show is the fact that it takes it has a really hard take on the brutality of space travel. Like this is my I think all the really great space stuff I've seen recently has always had this one overriding theme, which is space is a terrible place that is trying to kill you at every moment. And that's something that I think The Expanse really nails in a lot of respects. Oh, the claustrophobic aspect of these books and the television series is just tremendous. Like, I can't, I, I have never seen another work of fiction that has made me feel as claustrophobic as The Expanse books do. Like, this notion of these tiny little capsules uh, in this great void. I mean, that is that emotion that it captures is tremendous. Um, and probably the thing the series does better than anything else. Well, it's interesting because in this show, space is so unforgiving. But in a way, this show is unforgiving, too, because there's so little explanation, so little exposition. Um, and I mean, Liz, you're, you're the one you're one of the people here who was not already familiar with the books when you saw it. Were you at all? Uh, did you have trouble understanding what was going on at all? Because the show is so it doesn't spoon feed you anything at all. Not not necessarily, but I think that's part part of it is that I think the show does a nice job of kind of using the lexicon of of of, of other science fiction. So it's like you know there there are elements of it that felt familiar to me. There are elements that I understood, and I mean I think in general though like there's a lot you pick up via context uh, that that works really well, and I think that's by design. Like they, uh, I got to speak with the creators of the show. Uh, I, it's, it's weird to talk about them being the creators of the show because, of course, it's based on the books. But, you know, the executive producers, showrunners. Uh, and when I did, they, you know, they made a big point about how they really tried to strip away as much exposition as possible because they just wanted you. They wanted to put you into the world of the show immediately. Uh, right. Could you say a little bit more about 
how you got set up with that interview and who those guys oh. are and what their background is? That kind of oh, stuff? yeah. Uh, I basically, it, uh, at, t at the Television Cr uh, Critics Association press tour this summer, uh, it's actually funny. Normally, you know, the TCAs are a great opportunity to get interviews if you're a television critic or a television reporter. And because they, all the networks bring all of their major talent for upcoming shows, uh, to, to this one hotel in, in Beverly Hills or Pasadena. And so normally those interview, you know, you get like 15, 15 minutes face to face with somebody like, and, you know, it happens all day long. It's great. Uh, with the, the, I basically sat down with, uh, Mark Fergus, uh, Hawk Osby and Naren Shankar. And we were sitting down outside and we had this, we were talking about sci-fi. We were talking about the show, all this sort of stuff. And around half an hour into that conversation, they were still talking to me. And I was <laughs> like, okay, I'll go with this. And then 45 minutes later, like the PR rep wanders by and then wanders away again. I'm like, okay, well, I guess we're still talking. And we had a lot of fun stuff to talk about. And uh, so I ended up getting a full hour with them, just getting into the, all the details and nuances of the show and how they were approaching it. And actually, I believe, I believe Ty, the writer Ty was also there. He was sitting to the side and not saying anything, but kind of just listening to the conversation. It was weird, but he was very nice. Right. Well, and I mean, a lot of times with TV people, you get the feeling that they're not that invested in science fiction. I actually heard Ty say in some of the meetings they went to, people asked them, like, does this have to be set in outer space? Uh, which I think is pretty ridiculous. No, that was literally one of the first things I joked with them about. And they were like, no, we had that meeting. We had the, <laughs> does, does it have to be set in space meeting? Um, but I get the feeling just from watching the show that these guys are not that way, that they're very serious about making this great science fiction. And they, they also did, um, they wrote the scripts for Children of Men and Iron Man, I think. Is that right? Yeah. They're, they're on the, they're on some of the credit writers for those projects. Yeah. But what's actually really neat is that they actually, one of the things that we talked about is the fact that they went outside of the sci-fi realm to find writers. Like they brought in a writer from Mad Men. They brought in a writer from other, from something, something else that wasn't sci-fi related. And it was just because they wanted to find people who had a really interesting nuanced take on these projects on, on this world. When I, I got to visit the set when they're doing the, actually doing the production and I, I had a long meeting with um, Hawk and Mark and Hawk was actually saying that, you know, he wasn't interested in this at, at first. He, uh, Mark had picked up the book and uh, had read, read through it and said, Hey, you know, this is a project we should work on. And, uh, Hawk had basically said, no, I'm not interested. It's going to be basically, you know, people in space doing space things and it's, it's, that's not interesting. And then they, they, Mark convinced him to read it and he read, read it in the first book in a day and basically said, you got to get that meeting. This, this is not what <laughs> I thought it was. So they really, I think that the, the thing that the two guys found when they're doing the initial writing is that th this was a character story in space not uh, a space story about technology and, and people just happen to be along. This, this is really at the core of it. It's a, it's a really personality driven uh, narrative. That said though, they, I think one, one really cool aspect of the show is the fact that they are trying also to do some stuff that's different from other sci-fi things. Like the whole concept of the, uh, of the ships and the way they move through space. Like that's, a lot of stuff that they're trying to do that we haven't seen before. On IO9, when I, I did a, um, I did a post about this a while back. And, um, I, oh, it was when the, they, the pilot episode is now freely online everywhere. And I, I'd post up about that. And some people were like, what, what do you mean this is realistic? You, his, you have people standing on spaceships, you know, on the floor. And all the commenters are sort of jumping. In. It's like, no, no, that's actually, they, they address that. So what's really neat is that they've actually gone through and thought through a lot of the physics and a lot of the, the design. And this also shows down through the, the, the set design and the actual, um, you know, the trappings of the world. It's all really well thought out. Yeah. Well, so I want, I want to get Justin in here. So, so Justin, you mentioned that you had sort of mixed feelings about the book. Do you have mixed feelings about the show as well? Or do you think that they have improved on the book in some ways? You know, that's a that's a good question, a fair question. And I'll I'll say when I first watched the pilot, I watched the pilot um I don't know, probably three or four weeks ago, and I was a little nervous after watching the pilot. I thought the pilot uh was there were some weird technical things with the show that I that I thought the sound was weird, I thought the 
Belter Patois was going to be really challenging. Uh, and so I was getting kind of nervous about it. But then I saw the subsequent episodes and like all of my concerns were pretty much left in the dust. And I think the way they've incorporated Christian um, Avasarala's point of view in particular and uh, the way they've adjusted some of the history of Holden's crew and the things they've added earlier than they did in Leviathan Wakes is giving all of the context that to me makes the series richer uh, and more interesting that you don't get until later but they're getting it right up front. So we're learning more about these characters quicker. And as a result, we're buying into them quicker. Well, Justin, you, you mentioned that the, you had trouble making out the dialogue. Uh, I certainly had trouble making out a lot of the dialogue. Um, you know, we, I was the first time I watched this, I was just using like kind of laptop speakers that were not particularly close to me. And I, I was really having trouble making stuff out. Um, I don't know, Liz, did you uh, have any trouble understanding what the characters were saying in this show? Not particularly, but I can see why that that would be an issue. Again, like I was, like I said, like, you know, a lot of stuff I was just kind of picking up through context and, you know, the show deliberately tries to, doesn't, doesn't make it easy for you to understand what's going on. But I think that's one of its appeals, frankly. Yeah. I mean, the first time I watched it, I, I absolutely loved it. I loved every minute of it, but I couldn't understand what half the characters were saying. So <laughs> I, I think that's solved. I actually think that was a pilot problem. I don't think it's a problem in the second, third or fourth episodes. I really do think it was just. I don't know if there was something about the sound ending in that in that early pilot that they put out that just wasn't right, and maybe it'll be corrected when it's aired on Sci-Fi. I don't know, but it definitely was hard to hear stuff uh, like they had the background sounds amped up or something, and there was a lot more of the Belter language without any contextual preparation in the first episode that um, they start to actually prepare you for in the second and third episode. There's a really interesting scene where Havelock, uh, Detective Miller's partner, is... I, it's not clear if he's visiting a prostitute for many reasons or if he's only visiting her to teach her... for her to teach him Belter, but he's actually learning Belter from her. And I think, uh, like, that's an, I, that's an interesting discussion for us to actually understand what they're doing with their hands and the, they, the words they use. And uh, I think... I almost think that should have been in the first episode because I think it would have eased people's concerns, but um, it's an interesting choice to put it in the second episode like they did. I would definitely recommend people read the book first, though, because I watched these episodes, and then I went back and read the, uh, the that section of the book, and then I went back and watched the episodes again, and it made a lot more sense the second time around. Um, but I don't know, Andrew, what do you think about all the, about the Belter language and the sound? Did you have any issues with this at all? I my I watched it with a couple of friends, and we had the the, we, the first four episodes with a couple of friends, and I had we all thought that the sound was a little bit weird, and I I had been thinking that the sound mix was a little bit off either because it wasn't finished or it was a sort of a piracy thing so that you don't get the full finished episode. They, they sent these, these press packs out to a lot of people. I'm, I'm guessing that they're the episodes have probably leaked online somewhere. So that, that was my, my initial guess is that the, the sound was just off just so you wouldn't get a perfect product. And then the, the final, final version will be better. At least I hope. Um, as far as actually understanding the characters, um, I yeah, I had a little bit of trouble, but I think that's that's deliberate. Is it because you're sort of looking in on this very different world of the Belters, and they they have their own little weird language. They have a lot of hand motions. The hand motions come from and, and you know reading from the books is that because they were you know have to communicate with spacesuits. Um, and what the, what I what I liked about this is that they they um focused very closely on the background characters. So if you look, if you watch the episode and you look at all the background characters, you see that they are, uh, you know, there, there's the hand motions, there's the la body language, there's, there's all the stuff that gets you immersed in this world. And I really, really like that. I thought that was a really good choice. I don't know. I, I've read all the books and I, uh, a couple times. So I, I, I am not really a good person to say whether or not this, this is, this works really well, but I, I understood it fairly well and I could understand what they're doing. And I thought it was it was a very good way to to sort of build the world without actually you know telling everybody every single thing that they're doing to explain it. Um, I know that they 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 do sort of point out you know this is what this hand motion means, but then they just sort of go on from there. And there's there's some other little background things that you see, and I I thought it worked really really well. Yeah, well, I mean, you mentioned the world building, and I thought that was one thing this show did amazingly well. Uh, just both in the the hand gestures kind of things, and also the spaceships and the the environment, all this stuff. It just looked like they spent a lot of money and put a lot of thought and a lot of time and care just getting 
everything you look at just exactly right. I actually saw uh, the, the 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 episode where Holden is dealing with the Martian Navy, and the Martians actually start talking about the cultural differences between Mars and Earth. I don't recall that converse. I don't recall any of that. I actually feel like I know more about what makes Mars tick from watching the Expanse television series than I do from reading all of the books, which I thought was interesting. I just, maybe I just don't recall those moments in the books. No, it's in, it's in there. Um, I, I'm pretty sure I remember reading about it and cause it, it, it's not, it's not something that d- they dwell on a lot in the books. Um, but I do remember them talking about how and the show, I think does a little bit better job of it, but the books do talk about how everybody is trying to, uh, to focus on one thing, which is basically terraforming the planet. And that actually becomes a much bigger, a bigger storyline later in the series. I, I think that's something that they're still playing with, um, especially as, as certain events happen, um, book four and beyond. And we'll be back with more of our panel right after this word from our sponsor. So today's show is brought to you by Casper. If you need a new mattress, just pop on over to casper.com slash galaxy and order today. You won't have to visit a showroom or haggle over prices, and the mattress will be shipped to you in a box that's the size of a mini fridge. Then all you have to do is open up the box and watch as the mattress naturally expands to its full size. Just think of it like your own personal crash couch. As a science fiction fan, you probably know that a crash couch is what space travelers in books like Leviathan Wakes use to cushion their bodies against the intense G-forces involved with accelerating and decelerating a spaceship. But Dave, you might say, I'm not on a spaceship, so I don't need a crash couch. But that's where you're wrong. You see, the planet Earth is basically a giant spaceship hurtling through space at roughly 1,000 miles per hour. And all night long, as you sleep, your body is subjected to a steady 1G, pushing you down into your mattress. James Holton would never use some cheap second-rate crash couch, and neither should you, especially when you can get a twin-size Casper mattress for just $500 or a king-size one for $950. Your Casper mattress will arrive in the mail, and you have 100 days to try it out. And if you decide not to keep it, Casper will pick it up for free and give you a full refund. So if you're interested, just visit casper.com galaxy and enter the promo code GALAXY. Terms and conditions apply. All right, so now let's get back to our panel. I, I I wanted to look up uh, something, which is uh, we talked we talked a little, you you someone someone actually visited the set, uh, but apparently you know, they used basically about eighty thousand square feet of uh, of soundstage in order to build like so much of the world of the show, uh, which is really incredible. Yeah, I got to visit the set up in Toronto when they're filming. They're filming the last couple episodes, and just. Um, the, the way I described it and the way I was told is that they, this is the same soundstage they used for Pacific Rim, which had, you know, they're incredibly huge. These are enormous buildings. And, you know, I, I, I got to walk up to the Rosinante and then board it. And it was just, you know, you walk in there and, oh my God, this is a spaceship. You know, there's, <laughs> there's grading on the floor. There's warning signs plastered like, like as you would expect in any military vehicle. There's handholds, there's fire extinguishers, there's the seats look worn. I mean, it, it, this is all like, you know, oh my God, it's a spaceship. Um, <laughs> but even just looking at the other sets, I mean, this is really high quality stuff that they're putting in there. They, they, they've dumped a lot of money into it and they've put a lot of effort making it look right. And I, part of that, I think, is that the authors are involved and they've, they've got all the right people involved to make it, make sure it looks right. But um, I, I think this is a, they've, determine that this is a, a direction they want to see TV go in. Um, this is the right story for it. And they've, they've decided it's worth the investment. Yeah. And I, I want to emphasize that too. I don't know if we've said this explicitly that Ty and Daniel are actually in the writer's room, yep. you know, working yeah. on this show, which is very, very unusual, I think for a, a TV show for, that's being adapted from books. Well, it's, it's one of the many, many comparisons that you can draw between this and Game of Thrones, actually. Like the fact that, you know, the author is really heavily involved. The authors are really heavily involved that they're really trying to keep fidelity to the original story while also making the changes necessary for this to work as a TV show. Right. I, although in the case of Game of Thrones, my understanding is that George R. R. Martin only writes one script per season. So, well, I mean, he's he, he, yeah, but at the same time, like he's involved with the development of the story, especially right now because Game of Thrones has officially has officially caught up with his books. So yeah, he's yeah. <laughs> so he's essentially developing the story 
in he's developing his story in conjunction with their development of the TV show. Right. So, but no, I agree with you. But I think that it, in this, I think it's even more. I mean, I think Ty and Daniel, they're in the writer's room every day, you know, working on the show, giving their feedback. So it, oh, totally. I think it's even taken that even further. Um, do you want to say a little bit more, Andrew, about you said this is kind of like a new direction for television. Do, have you heard stuff from the Sci Fi Channel about kind of what their, what, what, what place they see this show occupying and what they're planning to do in this direction? No, nothing from them, but just more of a sense of what there's, what they've been planning to do. Um, we talked a little bit about this in the, the last episode I was on with Killjoys and Dark Matter, but Sci Fi has gotten beaten up over the last couple of years for airing some kind of crappy shows and really sort of turning their back on, you know, the classic space opera stuff. So like the shows like Stargate, Battlestar, um, Farscape and all the, those other ones, they, they really stopped doing those types of shows in favor of stuff that was either, it seemed a little bit cheaper, um, not as, not as dramatic, not as exciting. Um, and obviously your mileage will vary depending on what you like, but a lot of people didn't like that about sci-fi and they really thought that they were, you know, turning their back on their roots. So I think that they've, they've had some leadership changes in the, in the past year or two. I think part of that is that they determined that let's go back to what really, what the show is really known for. Um, over the past couple of years, science fiction, fantasy television has gotten really big. I mean, just look at Game of Thrones, uh, look at The Walking Dead. These, these are shows that, sh that could have been on the sci-fi channel and they could have done really you know, really well there because that's sort of their wheelhouse. But they, these other these other networks, which aren't known for science fiction, are taking the risk and reaping some really incredible rewards from it. So, I think that they saw that they need to take a risk. They need to they need to go back to something that people are really asking for, which is space. So they started really focusing on that. So we saw Killjoys and Dark Matter come out earlier this year, which I thought were really in the vein of the older like Stargates and um, uh, Farscapes. Type shows because they were they were light, they're funny, they they took place in space, they had adventure, um, and now they're really doubling down by going sort of the Battlestar route with this new show. Um, so I think that the new direction is going to be, you know, let's go look at what science fiction shows are out there, and I know they've got they've got others, others in in, in the pipeline, um, and not just science fiction but fantasy. Uh, they're doing the Magicians later on, um, and I think that they're really. Um, you know, pushing in a more critically acclaimable direction um, in space. I mean, the fact that they're pairing, they're pairing the launch of the expanse with, of all the things in this world to adapt childhood's end, like that's a, a huge project for them. And like, honestly, like kind of baffling, like this is the project. This is the thing that, that Stanley Kubrick couldn't fi figure out how to make. And so they're trying to take on this really classic work of sci-fi. Like that's huge. Yeah. I actually, it's a six hour thing. It's going to be over three nights. I saw the first night. It was pretty good. So uh, I'm, I'm optimistic about it at this point. I think one thing going for them is that they have six hours to play with, which is more, a lot more than Stanley Kubrick could have done, I think in a, a feature film. Very true. I'm a little, I'm a little weird, weirded out by that. Cause childhood's end is a weird book. And <laughs> I, I haven't seen any of it yet. Um, I'm interested to see what they do with it, but that is definitely, I mean, they, they do do some interesting miniseries events. Like Ascension from last year was, was definitely a strange one. And I don't know if that one quite worked as well. So I, I'll be interested to see how well that one works. If it, if it succeeds, it'll be another one of these sort of critically acclaimed things, I, I suspect. But, um, yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how well that comes out. Right. Well, but I mean, this is what I, I think most of us science fiction readers have always wanted is, you know, there's all these great science fiction novels and you're like, oh, why don't they just turn these into TV shows and movies? Uh, and so I'm really optimistic that that seems to be becoming more common now. And Justin, in one of your pieces that I read, you were talking about this, like, why don't they just adapt to the stuff that everybody loves already rather than trying to get Hollywood people to come up with some ideas? Well, yeah, I mean, I think there, there's no question that the success of some of these other massive adaptations is informing their decision here but it is crazy to think that like hollywood would just take something from scratch that has no existing footprint uh in the consumer's mind when you have some tremendously successful intellectual properties that are perfectly adaptable ready to go with existing fan bases that have you know in the case of uh, the Expanse has hit the New York Times bestseller list. I mean, even if you're only talking about a couple of hundred thousand fans, 
uh, out there. I mean, that's that's a huge leg up when it comes to word of mouth and that kind of stuff. And given that TV is moving away from, uh, you know, appointment viewing, you know, that word of mouth thing is way more important for television than it's ever been before. And now it's almost like book selling. It's like this notion of like you have to know where to look to get it in a lot of cases. You know, if I hadn't seen Jessica Jones blow up on Twitter, I wouldn't have even thought to look for it uh, on Netflix. You know what I, mean? I think it's on Netflix. I actually have no idea. I think <laughs> it's on Netflix. Um, it is Netflix. But so but that's the thing is like we ha- word of mouth is how we find out about television now. It's not like you just tune in onto to CBS and it just pops onto your TV uh, in the way that it did. 10 years ago. Uh, and so I think adaptation is is the best way because the word of mouth and the buzz is way more high for these properties than it is for something new. I also want to make the point that with an adaptation, you have the advantage of, I mean, the Achilles heel of a lot of big science fiction shows in recent years, I don't want to mention any names, is that they had a good idea for what they were going to do in season one and had no idea what they were going to do in season five. And, and that showed uh, really dramatically. Whereas when you have this book series that's, you know, you have five or six books, I think it's going to nine or more books, ultimately. There's a lot of thought has already been put into where this story is going before the the adapters even have to wrestle with that stuff. And the problem there is that if, because the, the expanse, they've projected out to be nine nine volumes, so they're just a little bit over halfway through. Um, you know, what happens if, if the show gets canceled at uh, season three or season four? Um, so you, you, you sort of have this pitfall of having a really great story that you're supporting at first. You can't support the long, the really long-term story without at least thinking about, you know, what, how do you end it short term? So I, I hope that they will plan ahead for that. And if the show, if the show doesn't last for nine seasons or, or probably or more than nine seasons, you're gonna have to basically, it's going to change from what the books have planned out and it might change the caliber of the show, which is good and bad. I mean, you, there's certainly other there's certainly good things that they can do with the TV show that will di- make it different from the books. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, there's definitely a false climax in Abaddon's Gate where if if they tweak the, you know, the, the proto-molecule storyline just slightly, you know, they could easily end it there. Well, that's, that's also a result of how they how the books were published because they they've sold the they sold them as a trilogy. And as I was talking to them, I was sort of figuring out why this was. But they they basically said, yeah, we sold it as a trilogy because that's that's what you sell. and by the time they had written Abaddon's Gate, they basically wanted to make sure that they could end that particular arc well. But at that point, they also said, look, we, we have a longer story we want, to, we want to write. Let us know now while we're writing this final, this third book, if it's going to be the final one or not. Because if, if, if you want it to be the final one, we'll end it. If we don't want it to be the final one, we can keep going and we'll, we'll change it accordingly. So that's, uh, that's sort of how the books came about. And they actually see the books as duology. So Leviathan Wakes, Kelvin's War sort of tell their own arc. Abaddon's Gate and Sabola Burn tell their own arc. And then Nemesis Games. And um, I don't remember what the next, the sixth book's called. Um, those books are basically one novel that's just cut in half. We, we talk about the books and, you know, having endings and all that. Uh, I mean, apparently there is like an, a, a, a true official ending for the entire series that they've revealed to the creators, uh, which I found, which, I, which, was, which is always interesting in these sorts of contexts, because, you know, how, how that gets adapted, how that gets changed over the course of the series. You know, that's that's a big question. But I mean, any TV show is always playing with this, you know playing with fire when it comes to like, Hey, do, do we, you know, develop all the story in, in season two, or do we let, let that go out for, for longer, even though we're not sh- totally sure there will be a season three. Right. Yeah. I actually saw they have the, the actual last line has already been written. So they, they know pretty specifically where this is going. And they are going on to a season two. They've, they've already started. I don't think it's been officially been greenlit by sci-fi, but they've basically got the writer's room together and they're writing the scripts for another season right now. So that gives them a little bit more room to work with this um, this first season. Yeah, I always I always want a TV show to kind of you know when they go in the season two, I always want them to kind of take a you know wire approach where they just you know now we're at the docks and now we're caring about all these new characters, but uh, they might actually do that with this one. The books certainly do that. They each book introduces a new set of characters. So Caliban's War introduces a father. Uh, whose daughter is lost. There's a um, uh, Bobby, the space marine, who I 
I, I'm with Justin. I cannot wait to see how they do her. She's my absolute favorite character. Um, Abaddon's Gate, they introduce a whole bunch of other characters. Um, Cibola Burn, there's a whole bunch of new characters. And it, it's not until book five that they actually go back. And the only point of view characters are really the, really just Holden's crew. And that's the first time that they've actually not introduced any new viewpoints. What did you think, um, Andrew, about the um, the casting in this? Did the characters match your image of them from reading the books? Naomi Nagata is dead on perfect. They they could not have gotten a better actress for her. Um, she she is just stunning, and I, I this and she is the reason to watch the show. She is going to be a a major character for this. I, I can't wait to see what what they do with her. Um, Thomas Jane as Miller, I thought was really really good. Um, he he captured a lot of Miller's mannerisms and. Um, his appearance and his his attitude towards things, I thought that was really really well done. Um, Alex matches a bit, pretty much what I had envisioned. Um, Holden, not as much. When I saw the casting news of that, I'm like, well, he seems really young, and a lot of other people sort of assume seem to assume that Holden was a much older character and a lot more, um, I guess, not as pretty. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, I mean, seeing him on on the screen, I thought he did a pretty good job. Um, the only the only real character I didn't really get was Amos. He doesn't match totally up. Totally agree. He doesn't match up with how I envisioned him at all. Um, I, I sort of envisioned um, the guy, um, what was the, the brother-in-law from uh, Breaking Bad? Dean Norris? Um, yeah, maybe um, his, the, the, the cop guy with the, who's balding. Dean, Dean yes, Norris. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm terrible with actors' names. I always envisioned him as like the perfect person to play Alec, uh, sorry, uh, Amos. Um, and I mean, so far he seems to be doing a really the the current actor seems to be doing a really good job, and I'm I'm really interested to see what he takes from it. But he's just he's not what I envisioned at all. But you know, I, I'll trust the creators. You know, they're they're the guys who who created the books. I, I assume that they're knowing know what they they're doing, and we'll uh, we'll see what they do for the next couple uh, episodes. I think Amos is just way too pretty on the show. Like he's there's if you if you know Amos's backstory, like the the guy on screen does not fit. I mean, I. I imagined like Tom Hardy after he got his ass kicked. You know what I mean? <laughs> like that's kind of what I envisioned. Uh, a much more, and I, you know, that's sort. Of, I don't want to use words I'll regret using, <laughs> but like he should look a little bit more um, like he's like he's come up on the streets, and that Amos just looks way too soft to me. But you know, I, I, I guess he's certainly good looking and muscular and. That's another thing. Like, this is a guy who's been living in space for a long time. Like, I, I know Amos is described as being muscular, but I think the Amos on screen might be a little too muscular <laughs> for the whole, for the whole, uh, the what we know about what it does for bone density and that kind of. He thing. He did get the um, the sort of sociopath element right. I thought he he and with um, you know the way that he looks at Naomi for guidance and things. I I thought that their relationship was tweaked a little bit in the show, and I really like how they did it. So I'll be really interested to see what direction they take that in. Something I found interesting was that uh, of all the characters on the show, this was the one that Mark uh, that Hawk Ostby uh, cited as his favorite to write uh, because if I'm looking at the interview I did. Uh, his reactions to things are so different, completely different than what we were used to. It's like he's a bent, got a bent, bent antenna. <laughs> did you have uh, Liz like uh, favorite? actors or like what did you think of the casting overall i mean i think it was a really great idea to bring forward uh oh god i never can know, remember how to say her name but sharen agadashu <laughs> yeah. um that's my basic approximation but I think, it, uh, wait i have it right here i'm, I'm gonna say shora agdashlu okay something, something is, along those lines point is beautiful actress academy award nominee and such a great presence in the show. I was really excited to see her as a presence, especially the way she's used in the first episode, I think, is a really a really great moment for the show and for sci-fi. And her voice is perfect too. Like I she's exactly as as I imagined um Avasara in the uh, in the books. Although the the downside is that she can't swear in the TV show and she 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 really does in the uh, in the in the books. So that's 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 the one downside. Apparently in season two, they're actually going to be able to give her a little bit more of a potty mouth. They're going to, their, their ratings, their ratings going to go up a bit. Excellent. 
But that, that was, they, they mentioned it specifically because of her. Like they're like, we can't, she couldn't <laughs> swear. She couldn't swear quite as much as we wanted her to. But next year, we'll be able to get make that happen. The one other comment I'll make about casting that I, I number one, super delighted that it's a very diverse cast. Um, I think sci-fi could have easily defaulted to all the other science fiction casts of years gone by, and they didn't do that, which is awesome. Um, however, like there is one very interesting casting choice that I thought was strange, which is Ade, the girlfriend of Jim Holden. Uh, is a Nigerian uh, in the books and is a white character in the TV series, which was such a strange choice for me. Like, I, d- I don't know why they did that, uh, given how diverse the rest of the cast is, but it was it, it really stood out to me as a fan of the books uh, that they casted that character that way. I, I don't know. I thought it was strange. Yeah, well, I mean, there was also uh, Lieutenant Lopez was a white, well, white actor as well. Lieutenant Lopez? Yeah, wasn't that the... That was his name, right? The guy who... Uh, I, I don't want to get into spoilers, oh, the, but... the medical officer? No. The, the, the guy who interrogates them? Oh, on the Martian, on the Martian ship? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't pick up on his man, name. Man bun? Yeah. I actually thought that actor did a great job. Yeah, I thought he was, yeah, I thought he was yeah. fantastic as an, as an actor, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's always a, you know, you talk to people about, about the casting choices and it's always, it's always so tough because I think every creator at this point really wants to commit to diversity, but at the same time, you know, it's kind of like life. You can't help who you fall in love with. And so a lot of people, uh, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of people get kind of sucked into these like, oh, we, we just like that actor too much to not cast him. Yeah, I, I could understand. It. I could understand that in that case because I did think that guy did a fantastic job with that character. Speaking of casting, did you? What do you guys think of Fred Johnson, um, the the guy they cast for that role? Uh, I I don't know if Liz or David or know much about Fred Johnson, but he's a huge player as the series moves along. And like the guy that got to play him, Andrew, to me felt just he didn't look again like just didn't look hard enough to me. I don't know. Who? Sorry. Who? Who was? Who was that in the show? He was the guy who was uh, working. He was he was the one who threatened the space Mormons. Um, oh, oh, okay, so he, yeah, yeah. He's okay. he's he plays a really pivotal role. He's sort of this this leader of this of the OPA, um, and um, he's not really. I don't know if he's who I would have chosen, but I think he's going to do a pretty interesting job with it. Um, I don't. I, I know he was a, he was big in um, uh, Walking Dead and and some other things, but I mean. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think you. I think you'll do fine. All right, so we're pretty much out of time. So I guess maybe we should just um, sort of wrap this up. Are there any things that you guys are hoping to see in future episodes? Things you hope the directions you hope the show goes in, or without spoilers, things from the future books you're hoping to see? Anything like that? I'll just say what I'm very anxious to see, which is how they actually handle the proto molecule, which they haven't really even discussed on the show yet. But the proto-molecule is the central plot MacGuffin, at least in the first book and really throughout the series. And we haven't seen it yet. Um, and how they handle what is really a bizarre science fictional plot MacGuffin on a show that is not doing bizarre science fictional plot MacGuffins like most science fiction shows do. Like this has this very authentic, gritty vibe to it. And they're going to have to introduce this thing that is different and how they handle that i'm very interested to see and i will say the thing i'm looking forward to is hopefully they lens flare a little bit less <laughs> on the show like man there's a lot of lens flares uh so you know that but i otherwise the camera work is exquisite like i love the cinematography but i could do with a little less lens flaring i agree uh well not necessarily with the lens flare I, i'm a sucker for lens flare i don't know why um just me. I'm, I'm, I'm with you there, Liz. I like the ones uh, there. But uh, you know, I, I I agree that the most exciting thing about the show is going to be see, going to be how it takes what's a really grounded approach and builds in some harder sci-fi aspects to it. Um, I'm. I have to say, I'm really. As I said before, I'm really excited to see what they do with Bobby. Um, she is introduced in some in Caliban's war and is just absolutely phenomenal. And she actually comes back later on in the series, which I was happy to see. Um, she's got a, uh, she's a pretty kick-ass character. She's got a suit of power armor and, um, I really want to see how they, what the, the production design for that is. But, um, if they stick with the, the track that the books are going, 
um, and th- this will be seasons and seasons later, but I'm really interested to see what they do with uh, the new worlds on Sabola Burn and um, what they handle with the major crises in Nemesis games. If they get to that point, there's uh, some really interesting things that they can do as from on a on a television perspective and um, story perspective. But first, we have to get through the first couple seasons, and I'm, I'm really interested to see what they do with the long arc of the of um, the, the Belter War and stuff like that. All right, great. Yeah, and I just want to say, in case it's not clear, that I, I just absolutely love the show so far. I'm really excited yeah. that this is the direction that sci-fi is going. This is like kind of the show I always wanted. It, it looks every indication so far is that this is the science fiction show I wanted to see all my life. So I just really strongly recommend everyone check it out. From the first couple episodes, I I have to say I like it a lot better. I not mean a lot better, but I like it more than I like Battlestar Galactica. Um, I I I'm a big. Whoa. Fan. <laughs> I've had people say that, but it, it's I really I really like it. I I think that the story is going to be a lot stronger and a lot um, more focused, and um, I like the characters. And yeah, I, I'm I'm on board. Hundred percent agree. And I have never I don't watch a ton of television anymore. Uh, my wife watches an immense amount. I kind of <laughs> eased back, but I cannot remember the last time the television show has made me need to urinate. <laughs> the tension on the show is really well done. Every show ends with like this really great um, last bit of tension and you get the little, you know, the, the stomach cramps and the, like, I, it's, it's just really well done. And I can't remember too much TV that has done that for me. Uh, so I, I'm all in. Yeah, I do watch a lot of TV. Uh, and I can tell you that this is, is even in, in the scope of everything that's going on right now, like this is one of the more, more under the radar than other projects, but it's still really exciting. And especially really exciting because what of what it represents about sci-fi's new direction. All right, cool. So I think that's a good note to end on. So we've been speaking with Andrew Liptak, Justin Landon, and Liz Shannon Miller. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Andrew Liptak, Justin Landon, and Liz Shannon Miller for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Mike Prothero and Arya Brill who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And I'd like to thank Jim Denton and Sachimi Damaratne, who just became PayPal patrons number 127 and 128. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I'd also like to thank our sponsors for today's show, The Great Courses and Casper Mattress. For special discounts, visit thegreatcourses.com galaxy or visit casper.com galaxy and enter the promo code galaxy. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening. 